Yeah, this past weekend, I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga was a surprising place, man. I'd passed through there years ago, and it was pretty run down. city looked deserted. This time, beautiful city. Blew my mind. They invested, apparently, in the internet a while back in, like, fiber optics cables, I'm guessing. I don't know. But that's what they say. And the internet there is like high speed, dude. Like the kind of internet that you dream about. But then the irony is they got so many people there that are mentally just fucking barely scraping it together. Barely not animals. Dudes that didn't even know the whole alphabet, you know? But in addition to that, they also have a lot of people that's there doing big things and a lot of outdoor activities. I mean, you can mountain climb, you can kayak. Beautiful bridges. If you're going to jump off a bridge, if you're thinking about, you know, doing that, that's the place. What the hell is that? Yes, my name is Brian. What would you say you do here? Stone on air. I'm so happy I could die. Hello, everybody. I'm so happy I could die right now. I am so happy. I'm so happy since you left me. Yeah, just kill me now. Welcome in, everybody, to the supposedly for-profit venture known as the Stone On Air podcast, available in weekly installments, generally speaking, every Wednesday. How are you? I am fine. Yes, just another 80, barely 81, 2, 3 degree day. In the middle of June, here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, because that's so normal, it's it's a uh, it's bizarre because I I don't I don't want to do this. I'm gonna do it anyway. I hate it when people say, uh, "Well, if you take out all these things, then it was a blast, right?" Well, if you take out uh, that, you know, it's a pretty good uh, situation. Well, yeah, of course, numbnut. If you take out all the awful parts, of course, all the good parts are magnified. It's when you combine the two that you get your realistic uh, evaluation of the situation. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to break my little uh, uh, pet peeve, I guess you could call it, is that if you take out the tornado, right? I know that's a big thing to eliminate from the conversation. But if you take the tornado out of Chattanooga, Tennessee's weather since the pandemic and really before it, Basically, all of 2020, the worst year ever, it has been some of the most fantastic, mild weather you could ask for. It's been borderline perfect all year long if you just take that little pesky tornado out of the mix. And really, the tornado only lasted, what, like 20 minutes? You know, the the scare of it, a little less than an hour? That's really not taking that much out of the observation, but obviously it's a very, very important part. All right, on the front end of that, that was a guy named, I played that, if you listen regularly, you've heard that before, or at least portions of it. His name is Theo Vaughn, and uh, I think he's a West Coast guy. I'm not entirely sure, but certainly not a Southern guy. And he was, that, that was from his podcast that he does after he goes out on tour, and that was from like four years ago. So that's why he's talking about the new internet kind of thing. And I play that because, first of all, it's funny. And second of all, I'm going to bring him back into the fold here in just a few minutes as part of the, what is he going to be? Part of the worst idea. I'll also have a coolest thing and a today years old as well. Also going to just kind of talk about um, the fear that I have for the first time. And it's genuine fear. I'll get to that before I wrap up the first Segment real quick. I as soon as I said I wasn't going to talk about the television programming in my life, I go right back to doing it. Uh, this past week, watched uh, Seinfeld's new stand-up, first one he's done since nineteen, I think ninety-eight, ninety-nine, something like that. Uh, over twenty years anyway. It was really good. Seinfeld still got it. He he's still. I mean, I guess when you only have to do one out of twenty years, it's a little bit easier, but still good stuff. The Chappelle just pop-up stand-up was very. Very moving, very powerful stuff. If you haven't seen it, take 29 minutes out of your life and watch it. You will be glad that you did. It's not really a stand-up. It is, but it's Chappelle, so you got an idea where he's going to go with it. It was good stuff. And then the um, the baseball uh, doc, the home run race of 98, I watched it two hours long. It was fine. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't that great. I mean, the last dance, the 10-hour Michael Jordan thing was pretty incredible. This might have been a little bit too long. Um, there's not. There's only so many ways you can talk about the race, especially now that we look at it 
over 20 years later and it's just completely ruined by the steroid abuse scandals of all that mess back then. And we know it was all fake and it wasn't real. But at the time, an 18-year-old Cubs fan, and it was, I was still a Cubs fan by the time I was 18, I pretty much checked out from them around 2003. I could probably do a whole hour podcast on that. Maybe I will someday. No, Jeremy Mahoney. Not much more baseball, so if you are listening, you don't have to check out right now. Uh, but it was fun. It was cool. Um, it was. Uh, it, it brought baseball back, and then uh, right now we're in the the potential next work stoppage. I've talked about it on here. I don't care. Y'all don't want to play this year. Don't. I don't. You know. I. I just. I don't. I don't even care about that. But that was. It was fine. It wasn't great. I was expecting a little bit more. Uh, quickly before I lay out the show, the responses from last week's show. I. Um, I actually sponsored the link on Facebook, which then automatically links it to Instagram as well, meaning I, I basically I bought uh, advertising to ha- have it p- show up more often. I've done that before in the past, and I haven't done it in a long time because I didn't really feel like I was getting much out of it. What I knew, do know they have done is somehow, once they integrate that into Instagram, it's not on my feed, like my Instagram feed, but it's, is in, it is in Instagram's algorithms. It got 337 likes primarily from almost no names that I've ever heard before. So it almost seems like they're, I don't think they're bots, but somehow the way Facebook does their, their, uh, you know, their sponsored content, but making you, I guess, make them feel good, get 337 likes. I, I don't think it really did a whole lot to the bottom line of the show about how many people listened, but I do know there was a handful of new listeners because Corey French from The Fridge, who I'm not going to reset all this. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go back to last week. Um, he He posted it. And then my buddy Barry Corder from the Chattanooga Times Free Press is doing a piece on it as well to get more uh, just overall awareness as to what Corey had to go through while potentially maybe insensitive, certainly wasn't fair. And uh, trying to make progress in life, there's lots of different ways to do that. And that piece might be available by the time this is available for you to download. I'm not sure on that one. Uh, let's see. Hamilton County Schools. I just saw this. I don't know if I have a screenshot of it to pull up quickly. Yeah. Hamilton County School set to vote on an $8.9 million purchase of Sears and JCPenney in Northgate. I think that's a move CSLA or one, one or two of those schools. I think it's a fantastic idea. Those cavernous, useless mall areas that are just becoming a a complete uh, outdated business model turn it into a damn school that sounds like a fantastic idea and there's all the reports of cbl and and uh, hamlin place having so much problems because of all the um, all the obvious i mean start putting make a big huge mall of schools (laughs) there's a there's a food court right over there you know you don't have to start from the ground up you don't have to build a palace like they built here in east ridge as I've talked about in the past, it's not necessarily about a beautiful building. Is anybody any, learning anything inside of these beautiful buildings? And to be able to recycle and reuse in all walks of life, I'm a fan of. So I haven't even read the uh, the article yet, but that was the headline that it showed up in my Google, you know, targeted uh, headlines. And over the weekend, it was all posts on social media, primarily Twitter and Snapchat for me of not Bonnaroo or hashtag not Bonnaroo. And I don't know if it was happening across the country. I'm sure it was, but it was amongst my peer group and my uh, camping mates. It was just every post throughout the uh, throughout the weekend. Hey, sitting around with the cat. Not at Bonnaroo. Watching Law and Order. Not at Bonnaroo. And um, yeah, still a little bit depressing time when the weather is so freaking fantastic. All right. Speaking of cats, I've got uh, Budrow in here in the garage with me. If you hear anything in the background, she's bouncing around. I got to keep her locked in here because the door is opening and shutting a lot for reasons that I do not need to get into, but there, that's why if you hear that. All right, let's see. Coming up, lots and lots of audio today, which makes me happy. In the final segment of the show, we're going to go down the Confederate flag conversation, the con- the controversy over some people banning it. Should we get rid of it completely? We've done this before. This has already happened not that long ago, but it was it was um, it was in different circumstances. And we'll just kind of discuss that. Probably the shortest segment of the day. I'm not going to do a deep dive into that one. Just gonna you know just talk about it. Have some audio to play. And coming up in the second segment of the show, I went back and forth on whether this was a good idea. And after I put it together, I realized it was a very good idea. Matt Busby from the Camp House, I was going on and on about his podcast last week, played a 90-second clip from it. I decided that I thought it was a, a um, I don't know if to say it was a responsibility of mine, but I, I thought it was important to play lots of excerpts from 
the podcast. It's not all of it, but it's the gist of it. It's the big, it's the bulk of it. A little less than 10 minutes, eight clips or so. And as I put it together, I was like, this is such a, this is such a good podcast. 20 minutes long. I hope you give it a listen. Chances are you won't. So I'm hoping you at least are sticking around for this podcast to hear it here. All right, let's screw around for a minute before I get to a little bit more seriousness. It is, I was today years old when I found out this, or at least kind of. I think Pringle's initial intention was to make tennis balls. But on the day that the rubber was supposed to show up, a big truckload of potatoes arrived. And Pringles is a laid-back company. They said, fuck it, cut them up. All right, so any um, excuse to get a Mitch Hedberg joke in any time. Uh, I was listening to a radio show. They were talking about Pringles and um, how they weren't made of potatoes or something. And it was like, yeah, that's absurd. And they looked it up. Apparently, it's made out of only 42% potato content. And I'm going to get to where the thing I've learned today, which I guess it was this, but I didn't care about this as much. Uh, I don't know what potato content is, kind of like cheese product, I guess. So they were sued in 2008 because they didn't have enough potato in their chip to call them a chip according to some kind of regulatory board or whatever. I don't know about any of that or really I'll care. So I went deep diving into a Wikipedia page and I found out that as of 2015, there are five Pringles factories worldwide. Well, there's one in Belgium. There's one in Malaysia. There's one in Poland. There's one in China. None of those things I knew before that day didn't care until I found the fifth one. Jackson, Tennessee. So I was today years old when I found out one of five Pringles manufacturers uh, are made in West Tennessee in Jackson, Tennessee. That moves us on to, well, there's damn Budro. Hold on. Jesus. This damn kitten is insane. All right. So that moves on to today's coolest thing. It's another thing from TikTok. I'm telling you, it is a cool app. It is one of the millions of uh, Trump impersonators. These are his favorite Bible chapters according to some random asshole on tiktok well people say donald what's your favorite book of the bible i said well that's very personal i don't want to talk about it. it's very personal but if i had to talk about it and i don't really want to but if i had to i would say that my favorite book is probably not for sure but probably the book of problems the book of problems is fantastic it's right after the book of palms which is also a very good book the book of palms but i've got a lot of problems and so therefore the book of problems helps me tremendously okay tremendously and uh, it's probably the best the second favorite is probably Genesis. Um, it's a great band, and I don't know how Phil does it. He writes both very well. He writes music for the band, and he writes the book. And I think it's fantastic <laughs> it made it into the Bible. Um, I think Phil said it best when he said, I can feel it calling in the air tonight. Oh, Lord. And that's so true, so true. But, yes, I'd say that my two favorite books are the Book of Problems and the uh, Book of Genesis. And then you got to go with Revelation. I've got Revelations all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, I'm going to do a whole just long segment of stupid TikTok audio that I found uh, in the next couple of weeks or so. And that moves us on to the worst idea. And that brings me back to uh, Theo Theo Vaughn, excuse me, is his name. It's a video cast now podcast. He has uh, lots of different uh, guests. And these are a couple of comedians sitting in with him. And they were talking about Ralphie May and how, of course, Ralphie May is from Chattanooga. And uh, they would say he would call himself the Chatta N-word. And um, he always got away with using the N-word for some reason, I guess just because he's a big fat guy who is just, uh, I don't know. But that was what they were discussing, and that leads us to today's worst idea. Ralphie May would always just say it and not care. I, I never understood how he got away with it. He go, I'm from Chattanooga. So I can say, it's like, I've been to Chattanooga. It's like the most segregated place in the world. Dude, he used to say Chattanooga. white here, black there. <laughs> he did. Really? Yeah, he say, I'm the number one Chattanooga. Oh, really? And finish it off, yeah, dude. Yeah, that's wild. And Chattanooga is definitely a little racist anyway. Oh, yeah, it's so segregated. And if he's a big, fat, white guy, he was probably on the white side. Right? I mean, just by name. I don't mean just by name, dude, yeah. you know? Horrible like if name. you're like if your high school's like the Nougers, like that's oh, yeah. insane. <laughs> so uh, it was funny, but it is true that I believe many people think that uh, we have a pretty racist uh, history in this city. And part of what um, Matt's uh, podcast is about is explaining 
that. And that'll be coming up here in the second segment of the show. But first, I want to get serious for a minute. And I'm not trying to make this too political, even though that's impossible not to. Um, any of these subjects today, actually. I'm actually been thinking about this for a while. And this was before the uh, the protests and the rioting and the looting. And this was in the neighborhood of around pandemic time where I was starting to feel deep down some fear. And I always preach, don't live in fear. Don't live your life scared of what's going to happen next because you're going to limit yourself and you're going you're gonna to make yourself miserable. You're going to go crazy. And you can't control what you can't control. Don't live in fear. And I am genuinely beginning to feel like there is something in the air. There's something... Something is different about this year, and the unrest is so bad, and, the, and, and people are about—we're not even to the worst of it. Like, and I'm not talking about the pandemic. I don't even care about that anymore. It's a damn flu, whatever. But all these benefits, all the stimulus payments are all going to dry up here soon, and the unrest is going to get worse and worse. We're going to get closer and closer to the election, and Don Trump's gone, going to do his first rally in forever. And because of these protests, that's going to give then people gathering in these mass these mass areas and mass amount of people. Well, that's a thumbs up for Trump to go along with his you know, you know rally and cry all over the country. He's going to start doing this every week once he you know once he gets that one time, he's going to keep doing it. And is whether that's good or bad, you know, make up your own mind on that. That's not my point. But the the unrest is going to continue because Trump is going to double and triple down on all the things that are dividing everybody. This is now what this is. And it's because precedents matter, words matter, and leadership matters. And I want to go backwards to a few things here from, um, I found them on my uh, Instagram account, actually, the little blurbs I make. This is from a, uh, maybe about a year ago. It's about a minute long. Me talking about these exact same things as far as words, precedents, and leadership. And precedents are very, very important unto how we decide what is and isn't fair, what is and isn't right. Just think about it. What we're living in right now is precedent setting for the next two or three administrations and for the next generation and a half, if not every generation going forward. None of us thought the way we do now two and a half, three, four years ago. None of us had this this just this edge, this this carelessness, this you know, just being satisfied by the factless world we live in. This stuff didn't used to be uh, it didn't used to be okay. It wasn't acceptable. And now because of the world, the digital uh, social media world we live in and a bombastic demagogue for a leader, we're setting a precedent for the next 10, 20 years on what we do and don't find acceptable. I'm just beginning to feel like there's a chance something that we're not used to, something that's unprecedented is going to happen. I don't know what that is. I don't know what, I mean, is Joe Biden going to die on stage or something? Like, I, I don't know. Is, 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 is Trump going to punch Joe? Is Joe going to, you know, is, I'm, I'm being flippant, but it just feels like something that we've never seen before is on its way. And about a year before that, here's another conversation. I don't remember what was in the news at that time, but it's precedence and it's words. Words absolutely matter. And experience and influence and precedence are so important, especially when you're in front of impressionable people. And children are especially that way, but certainly just numb nuts walking around. Words absolutely matter matter our country is going to hell 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 how stupid are the people of the country the weak and very stupid country words matter influence matter leadership matters the role you're in and the power that you have matters Honestly, it's like we're a third world country. I mean, our country is like a third world country. It's like we're in a third world country. We are like a third world country. We are literally like a third world country. We're dying. Words matter. Your influence matters. The leadership role that you have matters. I had Robert T. Nash on the show about a year ago, and I remembered something he said or something I had pulled from a radio show in 2015 that I played during that, and I went and pulled it because... It was his thoughts on what the most important thing about uh, the presidency is. This is about a minute long. Uh, Robert T. Nash on the show, or actually on uh, talk radio five years ago. Call me crazy. You know, you'll be in good company. I believe the chief role of the president of the United States is a leadership role. 
You articulate the zeitgeist, the will of the people. If you're like me and old enough to remember the Nixon presidency, particularly his second term, man, this country was in the toilet. Conflict in Vietnam, crappy economy, a counterculture that was once, you know, bright-eyed and ideological and clambering to make things better, let people participate on every level. Next thing you know, you got... The head's being busted at the 68 Democratic National Convention. You know, the politics of daily. I think the appeal as a prospective candidate that Donald Trump is enjoying, to me, looks to be cribbing straight from the Nixon playbook. Just appeal to the people who are just burnt out, fed up, ready to rant and rave and do whatever it takes to make anything different than what the current status quo is. I realize I'm grossly oversimplifying this. It turns out in the end he was not really grossly oversimplifying at all. That's basically exactly what happened. I played that entire thing for two reasons. One, to comment on that, and two, to talk about how like we're losing our bleep about how this is the most tumultuous time of, of U.S. history. You know, you get a book. Read 1968, about 1968. Read about the late 60s, all right? I mean... And other many other examples, but that's just one in particular that Robert T. Nash mentions. But the main thing I wanted you to hear and take away from that uh, 60 second clip was this. Call me crazy. You know, you'll be in good company. I believe the chief role of the president of the United States is a leadership role. You articulate the zeitgeist, the will of the people. Yeah, exactly. Leadership, uh, words, precedence, what you say. A lot of people are listen, listening. A lot of impressionable people are listening. And um, I am concerned that the, and I'm not saying Trump is doing this. I'm just saying in general, and I'm not trying to be a Trump hater, even though you know that I basically am. But this is all, it just all feels off to me. And I'm, I'm really concerned. Like, I want 21 to be here so fast I can't see straight. And for all the times I talk about how time flies so fast, it's, it seems to be slowing down a little bit this year for all the awkwardness of this year. I am just worried that something is going to happen that is unprecedented and it's going to be awful. And we're all, it's going to be a national situation of mourning of some the kind, something. I just, I don't know what it is. And I am genuinely scared about it. All right, enough of that. Let's move on to the next segment. It is Matt Bubsby and his podcast, from the camp house, given a little bit of a localized version of the history of systemic racism in the United States of America, and more specifically, Chattanooga, Tennessee. That is coming up next. Now back to more. Stone on air. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Stone on air. There's a couple of reasons I'm wearing my collar now. Number one is I've got a lot of recordings to do right after this for the church, uh, for our Sunday services. Um, but far more seriously, I think it's really important uh, that right now I, I don't separate the work of the campouts from the work of the Mission Chattanooga uh, when it comes to the topic of this episode of systemic racism. Um, these are things that go together. Uh, that, that my role as a pastor and minister of the gospel and my role as a uh, as somebody who, who cares about the civics and the culture of our city as the director of the camp house are, are one and the same and united um, fully when it comes to this issue. That until Bob Marley and war. That was Matt Bussey, the uh, director. I don't know exactly his title is. Sorry, Matt, but at the camp house, very religious, devoted, and dedicated man in all walks of his life, from everything that I can tell. And uh, I am a big fan of of him and what he does. Now, there are some things that have come to light recently about the. Um, the denomination of the church. I, I, don't, I don't talk religion. You know that. But um, there's whoever it is, whatever the denomination is, whatever the belief system is, there's some there's some beliefs in there that, of course, I don't agree with, but some I really don't agree with. But I'm leaving that separate from right now. Do your own research if you care about that, because in the end, I don't care all that much yet, because I don't know enough yet. Anyway, I love this podcast that Matt did about, it might be almost two weeks ago now, because of the how localized... He, he made his, uh, his overall point about the systemic nature of racism in the country. And we all, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody listens doesn't, doesn't agree that it's there. It exists. It's happened. 
for forever. But it's we whitewash history so much in America, especially. But and it's also just it's so hard to get into the into the weeds of so many difficult situations when you're of, of just all walks of his, historical life to try to teach that to kids enough in a curriculum based setting such as public schools. And that's a whole other topic and conversation for another day that I'd actually like to have one of these days. But so I don't think it's a completely, hey, cover their eyes so they don't see all this, even though I think there's plenty of that, too. I think it's also just it's just difficult to 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 educate in an uncomfortable setting, which is what we're all trying to deal with now as we're going forward with the Black Lives Matter movement, regardless of what you think about that. We could always use more education. We could always use more factual information. So I'm going to pull this audio up here right now and just basically fire it off as we go. And I've just got scribbled notes to myself here. So just so you know what the setting of this is, it's about a 20-minute show. It was a Facebook post. It was a podcast. And it was a YouTube video. So I started my post um, centered around an image from the Times Free Press. And the image is a picture of protesters on Sunday night at the corner of Market and Fraser and Cherokee Boulevard. Read this article if you wish, but this post is about the image and the tragic irony of African Americans protesting that Black Lives Matter at the corner of Market, Fraser and Cherokee. You see, this corner at one time represented the threshold of one of the most empowered and free black communities in our country. This corner was the threshold of a place known during the Civil War as Camp Contraband, where freed slaves gathered behind union the Union line to serve the cause of freedom in whatever way they could, many becoming troops and others serving civil projects to advance the war effort. After the Civil War, Camp Contraband became Hill City, an established neighborhood with black leadership and businesses. I did not know much of any of that, and I will do more research into the future on the um the, the portions of the Civil War that we weren't taught in school. In 1870, there was a reporter who had uh, very fond things to say about Chattanooga Hill City during Reconstruction. And a traveling reporter at that time, during the time of Reconstruction, commented that the African-American schools of Hill City were some of the best organized schools he had seen in the entire South. And then Reconstruction ended. And here we are today, 150 years later, at the same place, fighting once again for the truth that black lives matter. All of this simply proves Ibram X. Kendi's argument, in stamped from the beginning, that as long as racist ideas persist, so will systemic injustice. And I highly recommend this book, Stamped from the Beginning. It's big and it's dense and it takes a ton of time, but it is 100% worth it. The book is called Stamped from the Beginning, the definitive History of Racist Ideas in America is a 2016 nonfiction book about race in the United States by Ibram X. Kendi that won the National Book Award for nonfiction. I'm just reading this directly from the Wikipedia page. Back to my notes. Let's start some of that. The history lessons of sorts. Vagrancy laws. I'd never heard of vagrancy laws before I listened to this podcast. Each and every time we've made racial progress in this country, every single time, there has been an equal racist backlash that limits or abolishes that progress. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. Only for a clause to allow the legal enslavement of black people by the state once white communities pass vagrancy laws. So we got rid of slavery, but as long as a white community could pass vagrancy laws that you can't be out after 8 p.m., they could be arrested and put into slave labor. All right, so what are vagrancy laws? Just quickly, hold on, let me pull it up here. It is the Vagrancy Act of 1866, passed by the General Assembly on January 15th, 1866, forced into employment for a term of up to three months any person who appeared to be unemployed or homeless. If the so-called vagrants ran away and were recaptured, they would be forced to work for no compensation while wearing balls and chains. It was a roundabout way to put poor black people back into a version of slavery. And while it wasn't targeted towards just African-Americans, it was for white people as well. As this evolved, it turned into curfews, no soliciting late, homelessness. It was usually used in communities and cities and states around the country to go around the law to continue to oppress 
African-Americans. It just was. It's not up for debate. The 14th Amendment gave due process to every citizen, only to allow for a system of cash bond that keeps poor black communities in an endless cycle of debt and poverty. The 15th Amendment gave all men the right to vote, only to give rise to literacy tests, poll taxes, and terror to maintain white power across our country and usher in 75 years of Jim Crow laws. The GI Bill gave all veterans access to low-interest home loans that created the largest expansion of middle-class wealth and growth in American history, only to give rise to redlining that ensured that all of that money would be funneled to white-only neighborhoods and districts. And this is perhaps the greatest shift of wealth into white hands since the ending of slavery. And I write in parentheses, because from the beginning of our nation, all, all of our wealth was created on the backs of black bodies. From southern plantations, to the textile exchanges and stock markets of New York City, to the international shipping of sugar, tobacco, and cotton, all of our wealth for the first 200 years of this nation was created on the back on the backs of black bodies. As we're all very aware, post-World War II was very prosperous for uh, America in general, for many different races and ethnicities in America, but primarily for white people in America and suburban America. With this newfound wealth and opportunity brought lots of different things like urban renewal projects and housing projects. And while many of them might have been well-intentioned, many of them probably were not, but many of them likely were, the uh, unintended consequences were certainly there, or maybe even in some cases, the intended consequences when we became the wealthiest nation in the world. You can't underemphasize the amount of wealth that was created in the United States immediately after World War II. Uh, that is the moment that we became the, the most powerful nation and the wealthiest nation on earth. The entire world currency and gold exchange became based on the U.S. We, we, own, we owned within our country most of the gold in the world. And because of that, uh, enormous sums of cash flooded into America. And again, I already mentioned the GI Bill and how that has overwhelmingly ben benefited white families. But the other thing is urban renewal projects of the 1950s through the 1970s completely changed our cities. But when you look at every one of those urban renewal projects of that period, of those 20 years, it was created on the, on, from a white vision that harmed black communities. Almost every single project of that time harmed black communities in some way. And so... It was the rise of, of housing complexes and what we, we, what we now call projects, all of which have been a massive social failure on almost every level. Agree with that 100%. I will just say I, don't, I don't, never like the choice word, cho choosing of words of every single one. Love you, Matt. But I don't know about every single one, but it is very clear the majority of these urban renewals and housing projects were failures in the long run. At the time, probably had a vision that might actually work. People might have convinced themselves, who knows, but the proof in the uh, in in the 2020 hindsight is that majority uh, failures. If you look at the just the map, look at the atlas of the of the city of Chattanooga, I24 and Highway 27 literally divides the city. And so so when you look at Chattanooga, when you look at our own city from the sky, uh, you'll, note, you'll, you'll note two massive highways that create these scars through our city. And that's I-24 and, and, and highway, State Highway 27. And here's what I mean. These, these, these were created at this time. And both of those projects accomplished the goal of developing a, a, an economy, of, of improving our GDP as a nation. And at the same time, they destroyed our black communities in Chattanooga. And we still deal um, with the ramifications and what's left over from that. And so when you look at downtown, 27 carved our downtown in half. And the entire west side of our downtown is separated from the successful uh, center city that we have. And the entire west side uh, is our, is, is, was, was an African-American community. Cameron Hill at one time had been this beautiful neighborhood and it was destroyed in order to take the dirt and the soil from Cameron Hill, the place where Blue Cross is right now. They took that soil to create the ridge cut for I-24 that cuts through our city. And you look at I-24. I-24 separated the southern half of our city. And so now the area we call South Side along Main Street isn't the real South Side of our city. The real South Side is below I-24. And it's largely poor black communities that have been separated because of this massive infrastructure project 
from the success of our downtown. He's not wrong. Generational racism, generational uh, ideology. It's, it's not just what happened last week, last month, or five years ago, going back to words and precedents and leadership matters. This is generational for countless generations. I've only got two left to go here. So we're kind of left off in the history lesson around the 1970s. What about the 1970s and the 1980s? Since the 1970s, the wealth gap only grew because those same white families who took advantage of the GI Bill could sell the first home they ever owned. They could sell that for the very first time and pass that money on to their children. Since the 1980s, the war against drugs turned our country into a nation of prisons. And we have the highest incarceration rate in the world, boasting 25% of the world's prisoners in 2020. And since the war on drugs and the terrorist attacks of 2001, we have militarized every police department in America, teaching our police officers that the people they have sworn to serve are the greatest enemy they will face each and every day. And so within the next couple of decades since that, we see what that has given us. Police trained in such a way that they use lethal force in seemingly benign situations. And to be honest, that lethal force was probably always there. But now with social media, we witness it firsthand. Again, where is, is there inaccuracies in everything Matt's saying? It is, uh, it's, it's a very, very interesting and well put and thought out listen from the Camp House podcast. This is the final cut I have for you. This is stuff that we just generally don't teach young people in school. Again, Ibram Kendi's thesis is that for every moment of racial progress we have in this country, there comes an equal racist backlash that either limits or abolishes that progress. And that is why we live in a country today where the average African-American family or individual has a, a life wealth significantly lower than their white counterparts, regardless of education level. It's why our black neighborhoods are consistently the poorest neighborhoods in our city. And until we begin to understand that, until we can actually look at our history and learn our history, our real history, not what you were taught in high school, I'd be surprised if you even learned half of what I said in the college class. Until we can learn our real history, I'm not sure we can even understand the implications of our actions today and what they will have in the future. Really good stuff. The Camp House podcast, I still encourage you, even though you've now heard the majority of it, um, I still encourage you to download it, like it, listen and share and follow along because uh, Matt is a good dude doing good things, even though if it is a religion that I likely do not uh, agree with much of their teachings. But like I've said in the past, do unto others as you'd had done unto you. Is that how it goes? I don't care if it's in scripture or if it's a fortune cookie. Good advice and a quality way to live your life is just that. Well, okay, if I haven't touched on all the sensitive subjects for one day, why don't we talk about the Confederate flag, and we'll do so coming up next. Stone on Air will be right back. He's cool. StoneOnAir.com. Well, I just seen on Fox News that NASCAR's not going to let their fans fly the Confederate flag at their races no more, and that pisses me off. It's heritage, not hate. It just so happens that my heritage is hate, and I'm like Linus from Charlie Brown, and that treason rag is my security blanket, and I don't feel safe if I can't have it. And how is it a symbol of hate in the first place? Just because it was a flag of a group of people who went to war to fight for their right to keep another group of people as property and treat them as subhuman? I don't think so. You're just giving into PC culture, NASCAR. Shame on you. They're taking the Confederate monuments out of the park by my house that I just learned we had and all of a sudden care deeply about. And then there's you, NASCAR. You traitors. You Benedict Arnold. You need to leave politics out of it and stop making me question my morals. Unless it's Donald J. Trump driving around the track at the Daytona 500 earlier this year, you need to leave politics out of it. All of you, I wish all these bands would just shut up about politics and play their songs about politics. Stop making me think about stuff. Uh, I love him. Brett Tarun is his name. You listen regular, you already know that. Turn that back up a little bit right there. All right, now I can hear myself. I'm going to splice together this segment with the flag, Rage Against the Machine, being political, and whether you're a sports star or a musician, 
have a little fun and be serious all at the same time. Yeah, their name's Rage Against the Machine. Of course, you already knew that, and they have a life's work of raging against the machine. That's what they do. More on that here in just a few minutes. Um, like I said, I don't, I, I, I don't have super strong emotional ties to this, to this subject. Not really, anyway. When I was younger, I was a Southern kind of guy. Like, I, I still am. I love Southern rock. I think the drive-by truckers tell uh, education in their songs. I think Leonard Skinner is incredible. And the rebel flag, the battle flag, the Confederate flag was flown through all these eras of, the, of, of, of just regular life. And um, this all came up for the first time, or at least on a grand scale in modern times, this century anyway, about, what, five, six years ago or so, maybe it was just four or five years ago when that kid in Charleston shot up the black church. And I'll get back to that here in just a minute. But I love the Dukes of Hazard. The General Lee was the coolest damn car I've ever seen. And those stars and bars, to me, looked cool. I don't know that I haven't had a specific Confederate flag itself hanging in my house or in an apartment that I've had over the years when I was between the ages of 18 and 25. But I had something that was similar, that had like a variation like of the stars and bars somewhere on something. I don't really remember what it was, but I know that I wasn't opposed to it. I didn't drape it like, hey, I'm a southern born bred type, but I mean, I, I thought it was a cool look. And um, Tom Petty has apologized late in his uh, life before he passed in 17 about how he was ignorant to have the, uh, the backdrop of his stage like 20 years ago or maybe or 30 something years ago in the 80s might have been the pack up the plantation um, uh, tour one of those 80s tours he had the damn battle flag behind him the whole time for the whole tour and when this was first came up back in again when whenever that uh, shooting in charleston was he came out and said that was wrong i shouldn't have done that and it got me thinking about that time ago when i was like you know what i get the heritage part and then the more i think about it i'm like it's heritage, not hate. Well, the hate is the heritage, really, bruh. And my eyes really kind of opened to this at the time when I was over at Talk Radio and we spent, I remember there were some people on vacation for a week or two when this was going down, so I had a lot of airtime that week, and we talked about it a lot. And it was a, I felt like, a, a pretty quality conversation on the radio about it, and by the time it was all said and done, I, I remember I was talking about the Tom Petty uh, quotes that he had made, and I had said after the, like the beginning of the week, I was more like, well, you know, I don't really think we just need to ban this flag. Why would we do that? By the end of the week, I said, this is a bad look. This is a bad look. Don't do it. And I'm not going to I'm not going to march around and say ban the flag. I'm not going to do that. Um, NASCAR has said now I can't come to, 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 to the phrases. Can you imagine how big of a mess that's going to be, especially going back to what I was talking about, being kind of fearful of the overall unrest in the country? And, uh, and and Trump goes out and starts doing his rallying, crying, and people go to races and say, God damn it, I'm bringing my flag whether you like it or not. I mean, these are the things that are concerning me, but uh, we'll see how that unfolds as they start to let people into the racetracks here sooner than later. But it is a bad look. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not super passionate or pissed off. It's just a really crappy look. This is something I found on uh, Twitter or TikTok. It's only a minute long. It's it's think of somebody with a belt around their uh, belt, like a championship belt around their shoulder, doing a professional wrestling uh, promo. Hey, Confederate flag, listen here real quick, you antiquated, oversized do rag for a diabetic donkey salesman looking son of a bitch. Your time is done. You ain't been shit since 1865 when you got beat by a hammered drunk feller on a horse named Ulysses. That's why this week, the Buttercream Dream, current European champion since 1776, is putting his title on the line against you in a title versus career match in the back room of a monster energy drink factory. You are a joke, and you always have been. I mean, how you gonna have pride in something that only gets put at half mass when someone hits a goat on a motorcycle? It is time to put up or shut up, Confederate flag. You've been my uncle's favorite beach towel for too long now. Skew! Skew! 
It's not necessarily that funny. I just thought it was worth playing for 60 seconds of the show. His name is William Tappan Thompson. He co-founded the Savannah Morning News in the 1850s. As an editor at the Morning News, he discussed a variant of a design that would ultimately, ultimately become the Confederacy's second national flag, which would become known as the Stainless Banner or the Jackson Flag. In a series of editorials, Thompson wrote why he felt the design should be chosen to represent the Confederacy as, quote, the white man's flag. As a people, we are fighting to maintain the heaven-ordained supremacy of the white man over the inferior or colored race. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on from there. You want to know more about William Tappan Thompson? Knock yourself out and go check it out. There are actually several variations of the Confederate flag that I was not aware of how many there were. It changed regularly, and a lot of people are saying, I'm noticing out there too, and I didn't really think about it, this. The Confederacy lasted for four or five years, you know, 61 to 65, 1861 to 65. So, you know, barely a little over four years. So it's not like we're celebrating some hundreds of years of history, but they had a flag in 61 that looks nothing like anything I've ever seen before. They had another one later on that year, I guess, as they as they added more states, they, they updated the flag with the stars. It's still got a very similar look to the United States flag with the red stripes, white stripes, and the stars. It's just in a very different uh, variation to signify different states and different territories, I guess. By the time it got to later in the war, the Confederate flag that you're used to was the one that I was talking about here that William Thompson, uh, that he created. It's the Confederate flag as you know it in this portion where the 50 states would be of the United States flag on a just white black white backdrop, nothing but white, to just further point home, what is it called, quote, the white man's flag. They have another variation that adds another red bar into it later on, and then the final design is the one that we're all reckon- the most recognizable, the stars and bars, the Confederate flag as we know it is today. I'm not going to have a greater point than that at this point. I do think it's a bad look, and I think it's going to be a very, very interesting summer and into the fall as NASCAR is back, and I believe Talladega, whether it's this weekend or whenever it is, I don't know, is going to be letting 5,000, 10,000. They're going to you know incrementally go up with the, the amount of patrons that they allow in. And especially when we get back to a point where there's hundreds of thousand people there or whatever the large amount is, is this actually going to be a thing? Is the Confederate flag going to truly not be allowed? And what kind of raucous is this going to be? We'll find out all in due time. So I did splice together the segment with uh, politicizing things, both from uh, a flag standpoint or music or uh, uh, sports stars, celebrities, whatever. And you're getting a lot more of this. I have some clips from Laura Ingram I'll play probably on the uh, worst idea and coolest thing coming up in the next couple of weeks or so where she goes on and on about LeBron just dribble. LeBron, shut up. And then Drew Brees says what he says, and uh, and which I don't think was wrong, but then she's praising it as some kind of amazing thing. It's like, I, do you actually go back and listen to what you used to say? <laughs> do you ever just, just decide to stay away from something because you don't want to sound contradictory? I just don't think anybody does that. Certainly not these idiots on TV, and sure as shit, not these uh, politicians. Um, but I, uh, I, I think if you have a place where you have a loud microphone, literally and figuratively, and people are listening, I think you should. If you believe in something, you should preach it. You should talk about it. And I've always thought that. And it, it, most people, the, yeah, shut up and play the song, those types they love the politics in their mix when they agree with it and think it's the most poisonous, awful thing ever if they don't agree with it. The difference is most of the right-leaning kind of stuff isn't involved in the mainstream world of music, sports, entertainment. It is, but it's more niche. Like, yeah, there's somebody, Hank Williams Jr.'s doing his red-ass thing. Kid Rock does his red-ass thing, but most of us don't care about those assholes. It's the super megastars that have the the mainstream limelight, and then when they say something, oh, hell, keep it to yourself. Well, the funny thing popped up here. You probably saw this at some point. It was probably about two weeks ago. I've been kind of sitting on it waiting for a good time, and right now on the way out the door is the good time. 
Tom Morello and Twitter respond to those people only just now realizing that Rage Against the Machine are political. It began after Morello received a message from a fan who complained about hearing, quote, political BS in his songs. Let's see. It says, in a tweet sent to Rage Against the Machine guitarist, the person who has since deleted their account, thank you very much, told Morello that they, quote, used to be a fan until your political opinions come out. Music is my sanctuary, and the last thing I want to hear is political BS when I'm listening to music. The the deleted tweet read, As far as I'm concerned, you and Pink, I'm assuming the singer Pink, are completely done. Keep running your mouth and ruining your fan base. Tom Morello uh, tweets back, Scott, what music of mine were you a fan of that didn't contain political BS? I need to know so I can delete it from my catalog and just a few responses here worth uh you know notable if nothing else the people angrily denouncing rages tom morello's leftist politics is one of the most hilarious things i've ever seen on the internet what machine did you think they've been raging against for decades the ice cream machine the atm machine lawnmowers somebody in response put rage in favor of the machine with a direct response Okay, I'll do what you tell me. Uh, Let's see. He is right. Rage is not about what you think. Here's the actual meaning of the songs. Bulls on Parade, an annual county fair in Kansas. Testify, a song about a new startup specializing in tests. Wake Up, the greatness of alarm clocks. And Know Your Enemy, a Bowser tribute from Super Mario Brothers. Do I have another one? I do. I have one left. Rage Against the Machine, their entire career... Fuck fascist. Rage Against the Machine the last three years. Fuck Trump. This specific fascist. Fans. Whoa, whoa, whoa there. When did you get so political? This is the guitar player Tom Morello's own words just a couple of days ago. There I am uh, with my fuck Trump guitar, my mother should I trust the government's uh, Roger Waters shirt, and some poor sad sack uh, took that picture and said another successful musician instantly becomes a political expert to which I replied one does not have to have an honors degree in political science from Harvard University to recognize the unethical and inhumane nature of this administration but well I happen to be an honors grad in political science from Harvard University so I can confirm that for you that was a little viral nugget of hilarity in a dark time yeah that's absolutely uh fantastic all right that is it by fantastic i mean just insanely stupid people man oh i'm just you know face palming oh people people jesus all right that's all i'm gonna do for today i hope you enjoyed it i have actually felt really good about these last two podcasts the last couple of weeks i put hours and hours of time into them and i um thank you from the bottom of my heart if you're still here listening all the way through i appreciate it i appreciate it very 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 much. It's a wild year. It's an odd time. It's a lot of unrest. I don't have all the answers. Likely, well, not likely. You don't either. That guy over there doesn't. She over there in the corner doesn't either. And there's no reason to hate each other over disagreeing. And I try my damnedest in my old age to not do that. And I feel like I do a pretty good job of it. It's fine to think about things from a different angle. It gives people reason to think. You know, there were once upon a time I'd have never listened to Matt from the Camp House's podcast because he's that church guy from that coffee house, just like a you know an ignorant asshole, me. And um, I try to continue to venture out more and more to get different perspective to try to understand what other people think. And and I um, I think uh, everybody should do that. And it'll be whether you agree or not, or whether you even enjoy it or not. Just occasionally, I think that it's uh, it's good for the soul, if nothing else appreciate you so much have a good one we'll do it again next week is it the final wednesday of june already next week is it is it is it it is the following week will be july 1st yay 2020 having so much fun y'all have a good one see you later bye